This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's great to be here. I've, got, I've gotten to talk to the mini medical school before, and it's always a, a pleasure. And I'm going to be talking to you today about COVID-19 and the virus that causes it, which is called the SARS coronavirus type 2 and um, trying to fill in some of the blanks about what we know and when, where we are. Now, we're recording this earlier, so uh, this is going to be somewhat dated, uh, but I'll be able to answer and bring you up to date on the questions and answers following. So to start with, what we'll discuss this evening are human coronaviruses in general, uh, the, uh, the ones that are more pathogenic, SARS, MERS, and the, and the new novel coronavirus, where it emerged from uh, and how it spread around the world, some issues around individual and community-level prevention, and then talk about the impact of the disease and its future. So before 2002, uh, which is when SARS emerged, coronaviruses were considered relatively inconsequential pathogens that cause common colds. Uh, these are, there are four of those, which cause between 10 and 30% of upper respiratory tract infections. These are called alpha coronaviruses as opposed to the beta coronaviruses, which are in a different uh, kind of lineage of the virus. These are widely distributed in mammals and birds, as we'll see. Um, and there have been two that have emerged since uh, before the current one uh, in the 2000s, uh, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, or SARS, which emerged in China, and the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS, which emerged, emerged in Saudi Arabia. So as opposed to the, uh, the alpha coronaviruses, uh, these are beta coronaviruses. They ca primarily cause lower respiratory tract infection, that is pneumonia, and they have relatively high case fatality rates associated with them. And down in the table, you can see this was the world's experience with SARS with 8,098 cases and a 9.5% case fatality rate. This was, uh, this was controlled and it was exterminated or eliminated. MERS, uh, we've had almost uh, 2,500 cases with a case fatality rate much higher, around 35%. This continues to pop up from time to time. And the thing to remember is that 70% of these are from nosocomial transmission, nosocomial meaning inside the hospital. The reason these are so much so associated with hospital-acquired infection is because they are a disease of the lower respiratory tract. And when the lower respiratory tract is, in is instrumented, like with bronchoscopy or intubation or bronchopulmonary lavage or things like that, it can create an aerosol of these uh, fine viral, viral particles that uh, people can inhale. The upper respiratory ones, like the uh, SARS-CoV-2 we'll talk about in a second, uh, tend to get shed more in the upper respiratory tract and come out on large droplets that fall to the ground eventually. They don't remain suspended in the air indefinitely. So here's the phylogeny of, uh, of the current SARS-CoV-2 and the original SARS, and you can see these are all related here and they're all related to bat strains. MERS over here is more related to other uh, types of animals, these little hedgehog hog kind of guys uh, over here. So that's the kind of rough uh, take on these. There are secondary hosts for both of these. These did not come directly from bats to humans. They were uh, transmitted through other species. In the case of SARS, through an animal called a Himalayan palm civet, which are also a raccoon dog. They're these little kind of cat-sized uh, animals. 
Uh, and then also for MERS, um, they were transmitted by dromedaries. They can't like camels, um, uh, but uh, but not camels. This is a picture of, of the SARS-CoV-2, the, the disease that's emerged here uh, that we're dealing with. It, this is a cartoon here on the left. It has a so-called S protein, which stands for spike. Uh, and this is picture over here on the right is the uh, is the protein that sticks up off of the viral genome and has a binding site here in in green. That's what locks into the uh, to the cell receptor, which is an angiotensin converting enzyme type two, which are in the lung deep in the lungs, but also in the upper airway epithelial cells and in the gastrointestinal tract. A couple of things to note is we have an N protein here that's part of the nucleocapsid. And then these S proteins here and there's some minor proteins as well. The antibodies tests look at S protein and look at nucleocapsid proteins. So this first case was hospitalized on December 17th, 2019. A cluster of cases was reported on the 30th of December to the Central Chinese uh, Centers for Disease Control. This was in a, a city called, uh, called Wuhan, which is in Hubei province in central China. Big city, 11 million people. It's kind of a central Chinese transportation hub. Think of it as like Chicago. Um, the, uh, the the cases were traced to a wholesale food market uh, on uh, January 1st. Um, the virus was actually isolated on the 7th of January, and it was fully sequenced. Its whole, entire RNA sequence was determined by the 10th of January. There were rapid diagnostic tests that were developed and distributed, and a, and a so-called cordon sanitaire, which is a public health term for putting a ring around an area and quarantining everybody within the area, uh, was implemented on January 23rd. The Chinese government went a step beyond that and ordered everyone to shelter uh, in place, as which we all know about now. And the World Health Organization declared a public health emergency of international concern on the 30th of January, when it became apparent this was spreading to other countries. So if we think about the broad category of respiratory spread, there are really three types of respiratory spread. There's so-called droplet spread, uh, which is where you cough or sneeze or even talk or sing. You expel respiratory particles. They're not, they're, they're saliva uh, largely. Uh, or just the kind of the off-gassing from your lungs. Think of your breath on a cold day. That's what you're seeing in these droplets. Um, the virus adheres to them, uh, and people will either inhale those directly. Right? They, they fall to ground. They don't remain suspended. They'll either inhale them dire- directly, or they'll hit you on the on the hand, say, and then you rub it in your eye, or it can actually go onto a, a surface. Uh, and you could uh, rub your hand on the surface and then rub your nose or eyes and self-inoculate it. Surface, that kind of surface transmission is referred to as fomite transmission. Um, there is also aerosol transmission. It's, it's more than theoretically possible, but it really only occurs when the lower lungs are instrumented. So it's a problem in intensive care units and operatory suites where we're doing intubations and, and, and things like that. The infection control focuses on droplet spread, which is all the business about six feet and social distancing and all, which is far and away the most common route of transmission. It's followed by fomites, which seem to be quite prominent on the cruise ships, actually, and there may be a distant, distant possibility of gastrointestinal transmission. There's, there is 
probably small amounts of virus present in the gastrointestinal tract. So the story starts in Wuhan, the city of 11 million people here on the Yangtze uh, River in uh, central China, and the Hunan, Wanan uh, uh, seafood market, uh, which we see here. Uh, this is a wholesale uh, uh, food market that sells not only fish, but also sells live game. Uh, these so-called wet markets have been implicated in the past and in the emergence of other diseases, including some of the more recent pathogenic strains of influenza, as well as with the original SARS uh, uh, virus. So I said that the dromedaries and the Himalayan palm civets uh, seem to be the intermediate host. A lot of this is still being worked out, uh, but there's the strong suspicion is that this guy, which is called a pangolin, uh, this is a mammal, kind of like an armadillo, if you if you will, but you know again, sort of roughly the size of a of a of a cat, large cat, um, and these scales on it are uh, have a role in traditional uh, medicine. They're kind of like your thumbnails. That's what they that's their consistency. So this guy probably got infected by a bat in the wild. Was brought to was captured, brought to the uh, to the uh, uh, wholesale uh, uh, market, and transmitted it there. There's also a theory going around that there's a Chinese laboratory, Chinese virology laboratory, not far away that was a, that was trying to isolate bat coronaviruses, and there may have been a laboratory accident. I don't think we'll ever know either way. This seems to me to be the more plausible uh, explanation. So. As of uh, yesterday, um, when I was doing this, uh, there had been uh, 2.9 million cases of SARS reported worldwide. We're now over 3 million, and there are more than 200,000 deaths worldwide. It started here in China, spread through Iran, into Europe, and from Europe to the U.S., but also from China uh, to Korea and South Korea and Japan, and also to the Western uh, U.S. Right now, the U.S. has the most cases in the world, with almost a million cases, whereas Italy has the most deaths in the world, with about 26,000 uh, deaths. This is a, uh, these are called uh, epi epidemic curves. This is an epicurve of what went on in China. The blue is by date of uh, onset, and the orange is by date of report. Uh, so the because the, the reports lag a little bit behind the uh, behind the actual cases, and you can see it's gone up and down, and it's stayed down in in China, which I think is a testament to how seriously they took their lockdown, and their uh, shelter in place orders. There's a little bit of, of of kind of ratcheting, kind of sawtooth pattern, as we go out into March and into April, but that's mostly from uh, importations from people coming home uh, from Europe. Uh, now that when China opened back up again, they were able to come home, students, for instance, uh, and there was some transmission that they brought with them. So just to uh, summarize here, these are a couple of tidbits here, that the majority of cases came from close contacts of symptomatic cases. People weren't getting this on the equivalent of BART or Muni. Um, and, but only 1.5% of close contacts in China developed the disease. The transmission was was driven largely in family clusters between 75 and 85% of infected contacts. The secondary household attack rate, meaning what proportion of people in a household got sick as well, went from 10% early in the outbreak to and fell, but fell to 3% later as people were being identified more rapidly 
and were isolated more quickly. Uh, there was, tra- was transmission in, in closed settings, but it didn't seem to uh, be a major driver, meaning things like nursing homes, prisons, um, and in some of the health facilities. Early on, there probably was a fair amount of transmission in health facilities, that, and people brought it home uh, to, their, to their families. Transmission in schools was not observed in China, but this might simply be a result of closure of the schools during most of the outbreak. We kind of caught it right on the start of, uh, of, the, uh, of the break around the Lunar New Year. Um, and there has been a strong suggestion that China is underreporting deaths, especially in the waning days of the uh, epidemic. This epidemic curve gives you an idea of what's going on in, in a kind of worldwide. If you look back here on the left, uh, the spike here in China, this was, these are all Chinese data, the spike here in China in the orange is the day the case definition changed from requiring laboratory tests to requ- just requiring a, uh, a specific kind of uh, radiologic test, a, a chest CT scan. This kind of salmon color are cases in, in Europe. Uh, the the uh, purple is cases in the Middle East, which is really in Iran, and the yellow are cases in America. Um, and you can see how uh, right now, there are we're kind of neck and neck with the uh, Europeans in terms of uh, of cases, except they're spreading it out across X number of countries, and we're just have it in one. If you look out here in the tail end of the orange, as you go out to the right, a lot of this is transmission in some of this is at least transmission in South Korea, but it still stayed low and it never really took off to an epidemic phase. South Korea has had quite an interesting um, uh, journey. They have uh, more than ten thousand cases and 237 deaths at the time I, I did this slide. But they're all from a, uh, they're are predominantly from a, a Christian sect in a southeastern city, which had more than half of the cases, and uh, I'm sorry, about 60% of all, of all cases. The government didn't go to lockdown. They went to a different recipe. They banned assemblies. Uh, they delayed school reopening after the Lunar New Year, and they began massively testing. Uh, and their testing uh, capacity was vast, and they tested people frequently and um, were able to, as a result, were able to isolate and quarantine people quickly. Um, the quarantine stuff and contact tracing that goes on in South Korea is interesting. I'd be happy to talk about it in Q&A, but it's much more draconian than what we do. Um, and there was a small second wave out here in late March that was centered in a, in a call center in, in Seoul. In Europe, uh, this is a picture of Las Ramblas uh, in Barcelona. Uh, Europe became the most affected region in the w- world on March 19th when it surpassed China uh, and is now one of the three new centers of the COVID-19 epidemic. It has about half of the world's cases and 65% of the deaths. The most impacted countries have been Italy's Spain, France, and Germany, and the UK, all with more than 100,000 cases. Um, They went early to a um, shelter-in-place kind of model. Great Britain uh, lagged behind, uh, and now it's starting to to reopen. Uh, Italy started to reopen in uh, uh, last week. Surprisingly, the first things that were opened in uh, Italy were stationery stores and bookstores. Go figure. Okay, um, Italy has had a huge, huge hit uh, on its uh, intensive care system and, and uh, uh, clinical system. 
Its ICU uh, capacity has been strained, especially in Lombardy and Northern Italy has been really strained beyond its capacity um, and uh, its uh, patients were being lost because of that. Uh, Chinese experts came in and said the restrictions were not strict enough. Um, and so Italy moved in, moved the military in to uh, have uh, to keep people from um, from leaving their houses unless they absolutely were necessary. And here's the uh, surveillanza, uh, the integrated surveillance uh, in Italy. I think one thing to see here is that they had almost twenty thousand cases out of eight hundred eighty thousand cases among healthcare workers. Uh, which is a, an astonishingly um, large number. It's uh, more than 10%. And you can see how it's concentrated up here in the Lombardy region of, uh, of northern Italy. And we'll come back to Lombardy in a, in a bit. This just gives you an idea of what the wards look like in Italy uh, with people everywhere, oxygen everywhere, um, and problems everywhere. Now, one thing about having um, an overwhelmed healthcare system is that mortality rises as the system gets overwhelmed, and you can see that here in this slide. These uh, here in panel A, these uh, uh, these squares, these diamonds, represent provinces in China, and the circles here to the left represents uh, cities in Hubei province. And you can see the mortality rate here uh, in Hubei was about two point five percent whereas in the other provinces in China, it was about 1.5%. If we look at the cases per 100,000 population, again, it was higher in um, uh, it, it was higher here in, in Hubei province than it was in the other provinces. But if you, multi, if you graph this out with cases per 10,000 population here on the x-axis and mortality on the y-axis, there's a clear trend upwards that as you get more and more and more cases, Mortality, um, mortality increases. Um, it's, um, this should be a flat line, and you can see that it slopes up um, gradually. So meaning the higher the case rates, the greater the mortality. Um, this is the United States, uh, same kind of map uh, as of yesterday, um, with 966,000 uh, cases and 55,000 deaths, r roughly, with a huge epidemic focus here in the Northeast, all the way down into almost a, to uh, certainly into suburban Virginia and up to Boston. There are major foci in Detroit, Chicago, New Orleans, and now it's starting to spread in the, in the large southern uh, cities uh, as well. But most of the action's been in New York. You can see New York City, Nassau County. Uh, Nassau County is the first county you come to on Long Island after New York City. Wayne County, which is Detroit, Cook County, Chicago. Suffolk is the end of Long Island. It's beyond uh, Nassau County. Essex County, New Jersey is across the bridge. Bergen County, New Jersey is through the Holland Tunnel. I might have flipped those. Uh, Westchester is just north of New York. And then we get down to Los Angeles. But even Fairfield, Connecticut is essentially uh, suburban New York. So you get the idea of this tremendous amount of death that's happened uh, in, um, in and around the Northeast. If you look down here, we can see that California's fifth on the list uh, with uh, 43,000 uh, uh, cases. The bulk of those are in Southern California.
This just gives you an idea of some of the COVID-19 hospitalizations and ICU admissions by age group. I think the interesting thing here is that there are um, uh, there were a number of hospitalizations here in the 45 to 54, as well as the 20 to 44-year-old age groups. And they were not without ICU admissions in this lighter blue, I mean, the sort of mid-blue, or deaths in the darker blue. Now, obviously, the proportion of deaths goes up as you get older, uh, but they are not uh, unheard of under the age of uh, 55. That's something I think is a message that was originally not clear as the disease came out of China. This is uh, as of uh, 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 Sunday afternoon, um, Sunday the 26th, with California having 42,000 cases and having had 172,000 deaths. Interestingly, over here, if you look at the race and ethnicity of cases and deaths and how these uh, populations, how these different groups are represented in the overall California population, what you can see is um, is that uh, uh, African Americans and Blacks are have more than twice as many deaths from COVID as they as they have people in the population. Um, similarly, Asians are slightly overrepresented, um, and then Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders are also uh, overrepresented. And this just uh, drills out on this a little bit more. Uh, this actually shows the 18 to 49 year old age group. Um, so this was done after that prior slide, which looked like there were almost no cases and that no deaths in that age group. But if you look in California, um, this looks at the proportion, the lighter blue bar is the proportion in the population. The darker blue bar is the percentage of deaths. And you see how overrepresented let young, younger Latinos are um, in the deaths. Now, is this disparities issue? Is this because of underlying diabetes or obesity or hypertension or whatever? Um, we just don't know. It's, an, it's obviously a, a, a major um, cause of, uh, for investigation. Here we are in, in California again. Uh, if you live in Trinity, Modoc, Lassen, or I'm going to guess that's Plumas County. Uh, and then the, uh, the other one down here, which has to be about Mariposa, I would guess. Maybe it's Tuolumne, sorry. Um, it's, uh, there are no cases uh, there, but there are cases in the rest of the state. As I said, there are major foci here in Los Angeles, San Diego, Riverside, and Orange. Um, and then another major focus in Santa Clara uh, County. If you look across um, these uh, counties, you can see that there have been uh, overall about 200 uh, uh, more than 200, uh, you know, 250 deaths overall, um, and with a lot of cases. But in Santa Clara, especially, which had early transmission, there was an early death in Santa Clara that was in the news. I'll talk about it a little bit. You can see that that's uh, coming down uh, with a weekly change in, in new cases of, uh, of minus 25%. You can see everybody except San Mateo uh, is coming down. San Mateo's had a little bit of a blip up. One of the things we worry about a lot with COVID is whether it's going to use up all the hospital beds. This gives you a look at the hospital bed usage across the six county Bay Area. Uh, and um, you can see the darker blue at the bottom is Alameda. See, that's been pretty constant. It probably peaked out uh, back here around the April 14th. 
The orange is Contra Costa. That's also been pretty constant. The gray is Marin. That's been constant. This kind of gold yellow is San Francisco, which also probably peaked out here around the 12th of, um, of uh, April. The lighter blue here is uh, San Mateo. And then the green is um, uh, Santa Clara, with the greatest number of cases in Santa Clara back here even earlier, the week of April 6th. This shows you San Francisco's total uh, cases and total deaths. Uh, this was as of the 24th of April, uh, with an increase in deaths up to four, I mean cases up to 1,400, and deaths to 22. And this shows you the pattern of cases here in San Francisco. This gray area represents shelter in place, uh, and the blue arrow is when the first COVID uh, death was. Now. This is such a jangly pattern, it's a little hard to see the, see the overall geography of it. But, um, so we smooth it out with this, and you can see that there's this peak back here in uh, uh, mid-April and a kind of gradual decline. These, this thing that sticks up is because of nursing home outbreaks. Here we look at all the ICU and the regular bed usage in San Francisco. We had the high water mark here on April 12th with 92 beds being used. We're now down to 75 beds being used. Because this is such a, a cause of such severe disease, there's a fair amount of lingering of people that goes on in the ICU uh, before they can be discharged to the floor and then discharged home. That's, not, that's why you don't see that rate fall quite as rapidly. This gives you an idea of the demographics of the 1,400 cases in, in, in um, San Francisco. I think interestingly, uh, 41% of cases are under are 40 years old or under in San Francisco. And you see down here that uh, Latinos are, are overrepresented. And now you say, where is this? Well, it's where you would expect it to be. It's in um, uh, essentially the uh, uh, south of Market area um, and uh, the mission, or the outer, you know, sort of the side of the mission. I realize this is to the True Mission District. This is Castro Street um, here. Uh, and then uh, down here in southeast at, at Bayview's Hunter, Bayview Hunters Point. So it's, uh, you know, that's kind of where we're, where this Potrero Hill is right about here. So um, that's the kind of geography we're dealing with. Uh, and uh, the fact that there are a lot of cases in the mission uh, suggests that it's, um, uh, it, it basically corroborates the finding that the, that Latinos are uh, are um, disproportionately involved. Now, so that's kind of the numbers epidemiology. Let's move to the some of the interesting things that that are going on. The first is that San Mateo County, much to their credit, uh, had three uh, three deaths that they were suspicious of from uh, really earlier in the COVID season, really as it was first arriving. One on February 6th, one on February 7th, and one on March 6th. February 17th, I beg your pardon. And one on uh, March 6th. These were all confirmed by CDC in Atlanta to be COVID-19 uh, earlier this week on April 22nd. Um, and the interesting thing is that the first two deaths, at least, occurred before the county's first recognized case of community transmission. Uh, these people didn't know each other. They didn't have travel history. Um, they were caught up in, a cha in chains of transmission, uh, which remained under, which had not yet been detected. But interestingly, you know, this should have given Santa Clara 
lots and lots and lots of cases. But yeah, I think these things may have died out. Um, I'm not quite sure what happened. Uh, and the investigations of these are ongoing. Uh, but with that kind of extra lead time uh, from the uh, from the 6th to the 28th, you can bet the person who died on the 6th had been infected at least a couple of weeks earlier. You know, basically moves the whole timetable up by a month or so. Um, but inter- but and, and that may explain the excess, you know, 900 cases in uh, Santa Clara. You may have also heard about the Stanford study that tried to determine the uh, the proportion of people in uh, Santa Clara County who were infected. And I, even though I went to Stanford and religiously follow the football games and give them money every year, I'm going to be mean about this study. Or not, I'm going to be uncomplimentary about this study. Uh, this is kind of a, uh, there are lots of problems with this uh, with this study. First is that participants were recruited through Facebook ads. So that means everybody, not everybody in the in the county had a, equal chance of participating. Uh, they used a, bio, a, a, a serological and antibody test that was uh, turned out to not work very well and did not use a confirmatory test. Uh, they had 50 positive tests out of about 3,300 participants. So that's a crude prevalence of 1.5%. And then they did a lot of statistical adjustment and said, um, uh, after adjusting for sample performance, and the for the for test performance and how their sample was put together, you'll see that they drew heavily from Los Altos Hills, which is hardly the most representative part of uh, of uh, Santa Clara County. Um, and they came up with these estimates of two and a half to four point one six percent. Now, what the real problem was is that they violated Bayes' theorem, and this is all you need to know about clinical epidemiology is on this one slide. Uh, Thomas Bayes, as you can see, was an Anglican cleric uh, who was a, also an amateur statistician, and he uh, uh, developed a theory called Bayes' theorem. And um, and so you hear in, that, in statistics, people say, well, Bayesian logic says this, or in a Bayesian sense, they use it as an adjective. Um, so it, but, what Bayes' theorem really says is if the true prevalence of a condition in a population is zero. Everyone in that population who has a positive test will have have had a false positive test. Again, if the true prevalence is zero, anyone who has a positive test, that test will be a false positive. And you can look at the other end, if the prevalence of a condition in a population is 100%, anyone who has a negative test as a false negative test. And Bayes' theorem ratchets this up and down. And we're specifically looking here at uh, how it affects the uh, positive predictive value of a test, uh, which is to say, if um, you have a, a test that's positive, what is the, ch- what is the, pr- what proportion of those tests are true positives? With the performance characteristics of the test used in the Stanford study, uh, a positive test, uh, there are probably only about two-thirds of the tests that they found positive were true positives. So instead of being 50, it's probably closer to um, 35 or something percent. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of, um, uh, 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 you, you would have to redo all the calculations uh, based on that to try and understand the, uh, the performance of the, uh, of, the, of the test. But suffice it to say that there are a lot of false positives mixed in with those results, 
and um, you know, so that you can't you can't believe everything you read. And this just goes through the math of it. Sorry, I won't go through this. We also do. We also look for cases. So that's looking for cases with serology, uh, with antibody tests. Um, we're in the midst of undertaking a very large study in collaboration with the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative uh, to test uh, a random sample of people across the six-county Bay Area uh, with both nasal swabs for viral RNA as well as antibody tests to look for uh, past antibody. Um, and we'll be able to determine um, prevalence of infection and incidence, the number of the number of new infections uh, per unit time um, going forward, probably starting next week. Uh, and we're doing that with Stanford. Uh, this is a, uh, another thing that we've worked on, which is called syndromic surveillance. Mark Pletcher from UCSF has led this effort. And basically, this is an app that you carry around on your phone and you report in daily. You can see these are kind of the uncommon symptoms, sore throat, muscle aches, fever, chills, all that kind of stuff. You can see how it's been flat. And this we didn't then drill down and make a combination of fever plus cough, the, the red dots. And you can see how low that's been. This is probably um, the tail end of the influenza season. So that's reassuring that we're not missing anything. This is another uh, syndromic surveillance system from Facebook. Uh, similar kind of thing, uh, fever, cough. Uh, and you can see how low the prevalences are certainly down around 1% in much of the country. Although, um, you know, if you look here in New York and New Jersey, there's some uh, suggestion of increased background rates uh, there. This is kind of interesting here. This is the uh, where some of the Navajo reservation is, and UCSF has sent uh, a team of, uh, of uh, nurses and physicians who can do intensive care and respiratory therapists to the Navajo Nation to help out, just like we did to New York City. So a lot of these data we use feed into models of what's going to happen. This is looking at deaths per day in uh, California. Uh, this is from the Institute on Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington. And this is what they're predicting in terms of mortality, that the mortality will trail off here across, uh, across the 1st of May and largely will be done with mortality by the, um, by the middle of, uh, of May. They're currently projecting about 1,700 deaths um, in all of, uh, all of California. Now let's talk a little bit about individual and community level uh, prevention. This is what we're trying to avoid. This is the uh, mortality rate per 100,000 per year, starting in 1900 and going out to 1996. This big spike here was the Spanish influenza of 1918-1919. Um, and that's what we're trying to avoid. So how do we avoid that? First of all, we want to minimize transmission of SARS-CoV-2. There's a statistic called R sub E. I'll show you some data about that. Basically, that's the uh, effective reproductive rate. And it means how many other people will each uh, index case with SARS infect. So if it's an RE of, of two, for instance, each SARS case will be expected to infect two additional people. We also want to avoid overwhelming the medical system. We want to return to life, life the life we aspire to, in, in uh, Provost Stan Lowenstein's uh, phrase. And we also want to contain transmission until a vaccine 
is available. So we have these two intervention strategies. One is containment, which is based on isolation, uh, quarantine, and um, uh, contact tracing uh, with a lot of hospital infection control and public education, promoting respiratory hygiene, coughing and sneezing into your elbow, washing your hands frequently, covering your um, um, using Kleenex to cover coughs if you need to, um, and trying to stay six feet, six feet away from each other. Mitigation is what we're doing now. These are more community-wide measures, which start with telecommuting, then going to banning, um, uh, uh, banning large gatherings and going to closing uh, uh, schools and businesses, then moving to widespread community quarantine, which is what we're doing now, shelter in place. Uh, and then you can eventually move to border closures, which the U.S. has done uh, anyway. So here's some unpacking of the effective reproductive number. It's the the product of the number of contacts per day, the probability of infection per contact, how long they're infectious, meaning how many days, and what uh, proportion of the population is susceptible. This is only going to go down with uh, with vaccination. The antibody tests you read about and uh, people are touting as so wonderful. Don't differentiate, at least the currently the currently available ones, don't differentiate um, uh, the kinds of antibodies that produce immunity from the other kinds of antibodies which don't pr- produce immunity. So until we know that, those are called neutralizing antibodies, by the way. A lot of this, these ideas about if we just get the seroprevalence up high enough, everything will be fine. Those are just species because we don't really understand about uh, immunity yet. You hear a lot about flattening the curve, and I just wanted to show you what it what it means. So this is about healthcare capacity. So you see here's a line uh, going across that says health service capacity. Here in the brown, we have not we have failed to to um, control the outbreak, and we have a large amount of unmet healthcare uh, needs. Here in the blue, we we flattened the curve by having less transmission. Um, mostly by having people stay at home in this case. And and so we're able to accommodate or have less of a disaster on our hands with, um, during the peak of the, uh, of the epidemic. I just want to make sure people understand this whole second wave thing. So we're the blue line. We've had tremendous success in flattening the curve. So this is artificially flattened. It looks kind of like diamond head. Comes down, comes down, comes down. And then we have another outbreak here in the fall. This is uh, because of, of uh, as we back far away from, from restrictions and move away from uh, social distancing, there's a big risk of a rebound here in the fall. The governor's already said if that happens, he's not going to be averse to, uh, uh, to bringing the measures back that we have now. So I think it's interesting to look at 1918-1919 and understand what the story was. This gives you an idea of a couple of widely touted examples. Here's Philadelphia, here's St. Louis in the red. Um, So St. Louis moved to uh, social isolation much earlier than Philadelphia did. It had much less uh, mortality. But then out here in November, Philadelphia took its foot off off the brake and opened the city back up again, and there was another surge in influenza deaths, which you can see here in the red, which didn't happen in, in, in Philadelphia.
Now, this is fascinating. Um, this is about San Francisco in the 1918-1919 pandemic. The first case was imported on September 23rd. Uh, they tried to isolate the, the index case and, and quarantine the, his families and contacts, and that failed. By October 16th, there were more than 2,000 cases. Uh, on October 18th, the Board of Health closed the schools and places of entertainment and banned lodge meeting dances and other social uh, gatherings. And then on August uh, 21st, uh, the uh, wearing of masks was recommended. And on October 25th, it became mandatory. Mayor Rolf at that time said, conscious patriotism and self-protection demand immediate and rigid compliance with the mask order. Governor of California, Governor Stevens wrote, it was the patriotic duty of every American citizen to wear a mask. Remember, this is World War One ended on November 11th of this uh, of this year. And this gives you an idea of people marching back for, for an armistice day parade on November 11th. Uh, and you can see they all have, they, a lot of them have masks on. This is an emergency flu hospital here in, in um, Civic Center Plaza in, uh, in 1918. None of these guys have on masks, by the way. The uh, Board of Health, um, uh, there's a lot of complaints, and three weeks later, the Board of Health voted to lift bans starting on Saturday the, uh, the 16th, but there was a continued requirement for masks in some venues. On November 21st, the mask ordinance expired, and there were huge parties, throw away your mask party. Uh, people tore their masks off. These were gauze masks in those days. Throw them into the sidewalks and gutters, uh, and goodbye mask. The schools reopened on the 25th of, uh, of um, November, but by December 7th, cases had started to go up again by January. There were 600 cases. Um, and the mask ordinance was re- reintroduced on January 17th. This is when the rise of the Anti-Mask League um, uh, came up, who, who basically were a lobbying group, and the ordinance was revoked on February 1st. However, before the end of the epidemic, 45,000 San Franciscans had been diagnosed with influenza, and 3,000 or 7% had died. So this sort of erased all the good parts of, of San Francisco. And here's a family celebrating on Throw Away Your Mask Day. Um, and this shows you what happened in San Francisco. The green was the predicted. The red was what actually happened. And these are spots on the curve. So you can see that the mortality in San Francisco went up initially and fell back down. And then went up again and fell back down again. Similarly, in St. Louis, it kind of went up, down, way up and down. And in Philadelphia, where it was so it went, had gone so high, it was actually flat, pretty flat afterwards. So let's ask the question now, has social distancing worked? Well, Wang and colleagues modeled the epidemiology of almost 26,000 confirmed cases in Wuhan through the 18th of February. They examined uh, four periods before January January 11th to 22nd, and then January 23rd to February 1st, and the 2nd to the 18th of, of, of February. The magic of January 23rd was when uh, the shelter-in-place ordinance went out. So the 23 January to 1 February 
bit was a uh, was the first week of quarantine, and you can see over here in the panel that the R not R sub E the effective reproductive number fell from three point eight cases per primary case to one point two six of a uh, of uh, in the first week following quarantine, and then down to point three two uh, from the second week on. So that means that for each case here in the in the example of 0.32 for each case there are 0.32 additional people uh, who became infected this gives you some estimates for European countries we're like Norway we were up here it came down it stayed down here still in around the two range we implemented a complete lockdown and it fell down here into this range so this is uh, uh, Spain, where you can see even when it's fallen, it still stays above one. Um, so it's been a big problem there. Needless to say, we'd like some empirical evidence that this works. These are two provinces. They're not exactly adjacent. There's a, a province in between them called uh, Lodi and Bergamo in uh, Italy, in the Lombardy region. Um, these uh, uh, Lodi was the first city in Italy to have cases. They went to very early to a shelter-in-place program on February 26th. The other in Bergamo began shelter-in-place on March 9th. And you can see the wild differences uh, in, uh, in transmission patterns between Lodi here in the orange and Bergamo here in the blue. Like one of the really interesting things in trying to talk about why is shelter-in-place working and why does it work is that San Franciscans heeded this earlier. This is my favorite source of data, open table. And in this open table thing, this is looking at the ratio between people occupying seats in restaurants in 2020 versus 2019. And this is sort of roughly February and into early March. Um, if you look back uh, uh, to when Mayor Breed uh, talked about the uh, state of emergency here on the 25th, which was right there, you can see San Francisco had already started to fall and it kept coming down and down and was consistently lower than uh, than either New York or Los Angeles in terms of um, in terms of not going out to restaurants. Another thing that uh, one of my colleagues, Janet Wojcicki, pointed out is that the big uh, employers uh, began telecommuting earlier. Salesforce on the 4th, Google on the 10th, Apple on the 6th. Twitter the 11th, Facebook the 6th, March the, uh, Lyft the 6th of March, and us at UCSF on um, the 13th. And this just gives you an idea from CDC. Here's the emergency state of declaration for San Francisco, for California. Uh, first ban on mass gatherings, the school closures. The White House announced its 15-day plan, and San Francisco issued the stay-at-home uh, order. And I think the interesting thing is, this is the case count here. Um, the other, the case average, uh, the percentage change of the, in the number of cases has fallen consistently since then. Uh, and the percentage of people who left home on any given day fell from 80 to a little less than 50%. Uh, I couldn't restrain myself from doing the Lodi and Bergamo con, uh, comparison, so I did San Francisco and Los Angeles. Admittedly, Los Angeles is bigger and probably had a few more introductions. But you can see how flat the San Francisco curve is compared to uh, compared to Los Angeles. 
And this just looks Bay Area wide versus uh, Southern California wide, and you see the same pattern. Um, this is a this stuff is more pronounced here. Now you can also play this and take it out one step farther and compare Los Angeles to New York City, uh, and you see these are numbers measured in the six thousands. Uh, so it's really not that um, it's not totally these these things. Um, you get a feel for the uh, for the difference in the uh, in the axes here. And this also, there's another way to look at this. This is just looks at change in distance traveled by cell phones, uh, comparing before and uh, on March 27th. And the darker blue is where the phones have moved less. So here in San Francisco, the phones move less than 60% than they um, normally do. But you can also see down here in the south and southeast that people are still wandering around. Um, they're... Maybe, okay, maybe in Dallas, maybe in Houston, maybe in uh, Austin, and maybe in Miami they're not. But in other places, there's a lot of movement. And a place like Macon, Georgia, has become a big hotbed of infection. This is also a wonderful thing uh, from Kevin Systrom, uh, who was a, one of the founders of Instagram. And this looks at the R sub E, the effective reproductive rate by, uh, by states. And here we are right here uh, in the middle and again, what you want is an effective reproductive rate of below one. And then finally, the other place we see cases and we have to be concerned about are homeless shelters and nursing homes. This is just a slide on, on uh, homeless shelters to remain, remind me to talk about it. These are uh, testing done in, uh, in three cities, Seattle, Boston, and San Francisco. Um, and here's the number of people assessed and the proportion positive. In San Francisco, it's 66% are positive. Um, let's see. I think that's about it. Um, and you can see how, how it's kind of a built-in control here. Of uh, It's kind of a built-in control over here. Um, so we can just kind of skip through this part too. This is just the staff members at the place. Okay, so we've talked a lot about washing hands. We could skip this, I think. Um, now let's talk about what we've gained by social distancing and what's next. Uh, the initial estimates were that there'd be between 1.7 and 2.2 million deaths in the United States, which didn't strike me as outlandish. The average U.S. mortality, by the way, is 2.56 million uh, per year. So if we just do a little multiplication here, this is the U.S., this is if California is 12% of the U.S., this is how many deaths we would expect in California, and this is how many deaths we'd expect in the Bay Area, right? This is how many deaths we've had to date as of uh, uh, April the 20, uh, 26th, okay? Um, and you can see we have a very low, disproportionately low percentage of all U.S. deaths, both in California as well as in the Bay Area. Um, so that's what we've saved, right? It's uh, 44,211 minus 252 are the number of lives that have been saved. Each death is a tragedy. Each death leaves behind a family. Um, each death is, uh, is would have, could possibly have been avoided, uh, but it's uh, nonetheless uh, to have 252 versus 44,000 or 34,000, I think is quite a remarkable achievement for public health. So now what's next? Well, you, this I put this slide together before we got the order yesterday. Um, and the uh, what we're going to see is uh, obviously we're continuing 
sheltering in place. Once we get on the other end of it, I think we'll see some uh, quite a bit of social distancing continuing. We'll have masks when we're outdoors or in public places. Um, shelter in place may well continue for the elderly or vulnerable. There'll be no mass gatherings. And businesses, as they reopen, will stagger. So we might see certain industries first or only a few people or whatever. Um, we'll have to figure out how to do school reopenings in a way that um, cuts down a lot on mixing. And then the first line of defense is going to be contact tracing, isolation, and quarantine. And then the governor's also warned that he'll have a short fuse for returning to shelter in place. So this is the governor's speech on April 14th. Until we build immunity, our actions will be aligned to achieve the following. Ensure our ability to care for the sick within our hospitals, to prevent infection in people who are at high risk for severe disease, to build the capacity to protect the health and well-being of the public, and to reduce social, emotional, and economic disruptions. These were his uh, uh, six indicators for modifying stay-at-home orders, the ability to monitor and protect our communities through testing, contact tracing, isolating, and supporting those who are positive or exposed, the ability to prevent infection in people who are at risk uh, for more severe uh, forms of the disease, the ability of the hospital and health systems to handle surges in capacity, uh, the, the ability to develop therapeutics to meet the demand, which is an interesting thing. We've kept our research laboratories that are working on COVID open this whole time. The ability for businesses, schools, and childcare facilities to support physical distancing. And when he was talking about this, he said, let's bring out the blueprints, let's bring out the architects, let's spread it all out, and let's figure what's going on. And the ability to determine when to reinstitute certain measures, such as stay-at-home orders if necessary. He went on to say there'll be not a precise timeline for modifying the order, but these six indicators will serve as the framework for making that decision. And so at the end, I'd just like to uh, to uh, talk about two people briefly uh, who were caught up in all of this. Dr. Li Wenliang was an ophthalmologist uh, practicing in Wuhan who um, tweeted about the disease before at least the provincial authorities were willing to uh, admit to it, and he got in trouble uh, and then subsequently died of the disease in, in Wuhan. And Captain Crozier from the Navy uh, who was the commanding officer of the Theodore Roosevelt, the aircraft carrier, uh, wrote an, a letter um, uh, asking for help because of an outbreak on his vessel uh, and ended up being um, relieved of command. Uh, he may have been re reinstated by the time uh, this lecture is given, uh, but, uh, you know, sort of his gold-plated naval career uh, to end over trying to help his crew, I think, was viewed as somewhat, viewed at somewhat askance. So let me stop there. Thanks for your attention and uh, good evening. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.